Welcome to Impact AI, the podcast for startups who want to create a better future through the use of machine learning. I'm your host, Heather Couture. Today I'm joined by Matt Pipke, co-founder and chief digital health officer of PhysIQ, to talk about personalized medical predictions from physiology data. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Heather, for the opportunity. Matt, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to create PhysIQ? Sure thing. Uh, I have a pretty roundabout uh, background that brought me to where we are today. I, uh, I studied physics as an undergrad at the University of Chicago. Um, at the time, physics was kind of a diminishing field in the United States and uh, Cold War was over. And, uh, and frankly, I was, I was interested to find out what could I do with my life to bridge inventions and discoveries and bring them to daily life. And uh, at the time, a path that was uh, described to me, I was pretty wet behind the ears, frankly, at the time, was to go into uh, to study law and become a patent lawyer. And I did that. Um, I did go to law school. I um, did become a patent lawyer. And it was a fascinating training, frankly, even to this day. Um, I think it's an education that a lot of people generally could benefit from, but the practice itself was pretty dry, as you can imagine. Uh, what I what I thought might be more in, engaging in terms of the uh, the interface of invention was more about setting up real estate rights to those inventions post hoc and writing dry documentation. And I noticed that the people across the table from me, the inventors themselves at these companies, were having much more fun than I seemed to be having. So I uh, jumped ship, uh, joined um, a startup at the time. Uh, after a stint in, in IT consulting, I joined a startup where we were uh, working for uh, in one of the earliest versions of machine learning being applied to uh, uh, heavy and complex industrial systems, a company called SmartSignal. And uh, eventually that really opened the aperture for me. I, you know, as a startup experience, I, I, I could never see doing anything else. It's been fascinating, rewarding, exciting. Uh, every day I get up and uh, love what I'm doing. And that just wasn't the case with the high, even though a high pay was there in, in law, I was not as, uh, I just couldn't see myself spending my, my daytimes doing that. So uh, that brought me to that startup. And then um, that company eventually was uh, sold to uh, General Electric. I believe to this day, they're still using that technology to monitor jet engines and, and power plants and things like that. And some of us that were there, including my uh, colleague who co-founded PhysIQ with me, uh, he was our CEO at SmartSignal, and he's our CEO at PhysIQ now, Gary Concrete. Um, we looked forward to what other applications we might uh, find out in the world for machine learning techniques, especially what we were trying to prove out at the time. And it, the obvious answer was healthcare. Uh, the, it, the piece of equipment that most of us care the most about is our, our bodies, our health. Uh, there are you know, now what, seven, eight billion of us on the planet. So there's lots of these machines out there that are worth monitoring and being able to do predictive analytics to help healthcare clinicians to help us stay healthy and fit. So we took that technology and founded PhysIQ uh, with the intention of bringing machine learning and personalized uh, modeling to revolutionize how healthcare is done. And that's sort of the back, background there. So what kind of solutions does PhysIQ create and, and why is this important for healthcare? So PhysIQ today is a company that is basically harvesting data from 
continuous wearable sensors on patients and, um, uh, and, and people who are in clinical trials who are at home in the wild, so to speak. Um, they are uh, going through activities of daily living and they're, you know, they're living out where disease begins, where the real interface to quality of life and health is occurring. So what we're looking to do, what PhysIQ does is it harvests data from those continuous data streams from wearable sensors and uh, produces analytical results that are useful for uh, clinical care when taking care of patients who are outside the four walls of the hospital and in uh, scientific endeavors such as clinical trials where it's interesting to know what the efficacy of the drug is on a target disease, whether the, um, whether the health of the patients who um, might take those drugs is, is being improved or at least is not degrading any further. And um, so we're basically selling to two industries. We're selling to the medical healthcare industry on the one hand for use in monitoring patients after they're discharged from hospital to keep them healthy, to keep them out of the hospital. And we're also uh, selling into the pharma space in terms of uh, producing uh, AI and machine learning driven analytics using wearable sensor data to describe the efficacy of interventions such as the drugs that, that those companies are interested in testing. What role does machine learning play in your technology? Machine learning is the heart of everything we do. Um, so just to step back a little bit and describe what, what is this data and what needs to be done with it. This, these sensors are medical grade sensors. So they, they're a little bit of a step up from your typical consumer fitness device. Um, today, there are wrist-based devices, arm-based devices, um, and devices that are like an electronic band-aid that can be worn for many days on the chest. There's a number of companies that produce those devices. At one time, PhysIQ also made such a device. Um, but we always knew that what we would become is a platform that would uh, be agnostic to all these devices and, and be willing to take in data from these devices. And that, that data comprises um, uh, vital signs and movement behaviors, movement activity data from these devices worn by people 24 hours a day. And uh, we're harvesting that to see what kind of uh, information we can provide on the health of those, those subjects and their activities. So it's really very noisy data when you think about it. This is noisy data from um, home life. And it, uh, there's really no way to look at this with normal signal processing algorithms and certainly no way for anybody to just look at the raw data. Um, so what we, we have to do is build our algorithms and our analytics based on machine learning techniques, and of course, uh, more recent, uh, really successful subgroup of uh, deep neural net uh, algorithms that can sift through this data and can highlight accurately the vital signs of physiology we need to make the assessments um, available. So it's really the, the basis of everything we do. So you mentioned noise as one of the challenges. What other challenges do you encounter in working with this type of data? And what do you do about these challenges? Yeah, I think the, uh, there's a lot of layers of the onion to peel back there. Um, you know, at, at, at the ground level, uh, you've got noise that is more systemic noise. This is the, the uh, people who are wearing these devices are moving around in a free living environment they can get up off the couch, their heart rate can spike up suddenly. Is that right? Is that wrong? Right? So there's all kinds of variation and dynamics that come from 
the biological system that we're monitoring. They're not, they can be natural. That could be uh, an appropriate response. It might also be um, an aberrant response. And so part of the uh, issue there is to figure out how to differentiate uh, the background variation that's normal for people as they move around in their daily lives from the telltale signs that they may be suffering from a derangement of physiology in that sense. There's also some degree of uh, sensor noise that has to be filtered out. And so we're facing noise on a couple of levels there. Um, you know, ultimately, uh, the, the, um, what we really need to do is we need to collect uh, a ton of data in order to uh, train these networks to understand how to differentiate these things. So the challenges that uh, we have include uh, collecting sufficient data to power these algorithms. So that's that's job one, it's just getting enough data. Another challenge that we face with regard to the data is to understand that we're targeting the right population. So a lot of the work that we've done um, has been to, to get data from real patient populations. There's a, a lot of uh, companies and offerings out there that are in the consumer fitness market they might be appropriate for healthy populations that are looking to track their activities, um, the amount of sleep that a healthy person might get. But really, these aren't, um, they're really not the right target populations of interest for the medical system or for clinical trials, where you have you know, a population that's suffering from a disease that a drug is targeting. So for us, challenges have included getting data from populations of interest. Uh, and as well as understanding the outcomes and, and proper labeling of these data sets, because without the labeling, of course, we won't be able to train our machine learning and, and AI methods. So how do you validate your models? So with, with validation, which is a huge issue, there's both you know, best practices in AI algorithm development, but it's also important to validate for clinically meaningful purposes. And, and there's an interesting story here. You know, a lot of... Uh, startups in the early days, um, and we were like this as well, we, we kind of did our validations informally. We convinced ourselves when we tested it on data that we had handy or the on data we could collect ourselves that it seemed like our algorithms were working. But um, it really wasn't until about a decade ago that we got into having to submit our, our algorithms as, as medical devices to FDA for uh, clearance under 510K regulations that really brought us a, a step change level forward in how we validate. And part of FDA 510K regulation includes uh, adherence to quality systems regulations, which includes as a subset design control. And proper design control really helped us uh, increase the quality of our algorithms tremendously. We learned a lot in going from a team of people who were pretty tech savvy, right? But, and we were algorithm savvy, but we really didn't understand what was the purpose of the, of the algorithm. What was, how was it gonna be used by the end user, whether that's the clinician, the, the clinical scientist in pharma or the patients in some kind of uh, feedback loop of patients what was it that somebody could do as an, as an action based on the information? And then how could we actually validate this against uh, the target populations, given all the things that can go wrong in the real world in collecting this data and understanding what really what it really meant? So we, at that time, we adopted 
the design control principles from the FDA design control regulations. And it really, to this day, we, we practice this with all of our algorithms, whether or not we're going to submit them to FDA, uh, we were convinced enough that what, we're, what we learned from this process was valuable enough to improve the quality of our, our algorithms across the board. And so that's what we do to this day. And this kind of includes everything from thinking through how you're going to test things, how you're going to validate the algorithm at the end, whether what kind of outputs it's going to produce. Is that output meaningful to the user ultimately? Um, whether uh, it's valid in the target populations of interest, uh, what the requirements are going in. So stepping back from the usual, uh, you know, kind of young, vigorous, you know, energy full approach that we had as a fresh startup and stepping back and saying, all right, let's follow this, this more disciplined process has really been uh, well worth it in the end. Now, I know that a lot of companies out there uh, tend to avoid kind of the regulatory pathway for medical or health or fitness applications. And I don't think that's a good move. I really don't recommend that. I think, I think it's worth diving in on the regulatory side and saying, we'll go through that process. The, the FDA experience for us has been at times frustrating, of course, as it is for anybody who has to deal with regulations. But at the same time, there is a core of meaningful value add there. Um, the regulatory agencies around the world, the FDA included, uh, they have a pretty thankless job. They, they never get credit for what they do. They only get you know, complained about. But it, what they're doing is really, really critical to outputting valuable, um, usable product in the healthcare and medical space. So I would say, you know, for anybody contemplating getting into the, the space that re relates to physiology of humans, um, it's been well worth it to include the regulatory pathway and not avoid it. Um, it, we've learned a lot. We've um, actually improved our process quite a bit. And to this day, we see, you know, the, the industry, the marketplace is replete with offerings that sound a lot like what we're doing, but they just don't even compare because we've been able to hold our own feet to the fire a lot closer and, and really um, be the best critics internally of what, what we're producing um, by following these design control principles. So, uh, yeah, I would say that, um, Validating our models is a huge, huge and important aspect of what we're doing because we are in a regulated space. This might not be applicable to to other you know, applications of AI and in, in non-medical, non-physiology related spaces, but, but it's been really important for what we're doing. One of the issues that can come up when you're validating is the potential for bias from models. How might bias manifest with models trained on physiological data? And what are some things your team is doing to mitigate it? That's a, it's an interesting uh, question because it's, it's come up uh, a couple of times recently, actually. Um, yeah. So bias in models really comes back to the, to the representativeness of your data, right? So if you've got data, that's not representing um, the, the target users, the target populations that, that you're going to analyze, you can end up with bias. You can end up with bias in surprising ways. So, you know, a story here, from some of our inter recent interactions with FDA, we were submitting, um, we were having a session called the QSUB where you actually get a chance to ask FDA questions ahead of time and see what their responses are gonna be. You know, they tend to be a little bit resistant to giving you full answers, of course, but um, it's it's somewhat revealing. And one of the issues that came up was um, was something called geographical diversity. So what does this mean? If you are collecting data on patients from 
um, out in the world at medical systems, you know, maybe to, to validate a new algorithm that can predict something about the health of people. You might end up with a pretty good population, but you're only you're only collecting it from one or two healthcare systems. Now it could be that those healthcare systems practice um, medicine in a certain way. They're using certain equipment. They are uh, drawing from a population that might be regionally focused. And the point came up, and I think this was a really, really valid example of the kind of um, what's necessary to, to avoid bias in, in our machine learning is, is that uh, they suggested we increase the number of sites we we're drawing from. We already had a, perhaps three or four sites we were including, but they said, we'd like to see more. And we said, well, what do you, do you, do you want something? When you say regional diversity, do you really mean geographical regional diversity? And they said, no, it's not really about geography, but we just want to see that you, you've got, you know, generalizability for your algorithm uh, from a variety of, of um, medical systems in different parts of the world or different parts of the country, if you can, just because you never know what your learning algorithm might learn about the data that you didn't expect. And, and it might be modeling and overfitting something. So an example might be if you've got data that all came from part of the country that was uh, where you know hay fever happens in unison, then everybody, you know, your model might be modeling and fitting some phenomenon related to the hay fever more than anything else. Or you might be drawing from populations in a medical system or medical region where practices are all harmonized in a way that isn't the case in other parts of the country or other parts of the world. So the danger with these machine learning techniques, of course, is we're really dependent on the data that was used for training. And these models have a tendency to fit whatever they can fit under the uh, uh, under the the penalties or the the error functions, the cost functions that drive their their training. And if you if you aren't aware of what might be lurking in your data, you could be overfitting the wrong thing, and then find out that your algorithm does not generalize, does not work in other other areas, and uh, when applied. So, you know, it's it's there's no panacea for this but you know making sure that you're you're collecting data to train your algorithms and validate your algorithms from a, as wide a swath of practice and populations and regions as you can is is uh, is very helpful and, and we try to do that but it, we have to do that within reason of business capabilities business purposes um, but you know it's a it's an area that we focus on to to try to drive bias out of the models that we're training and the machine learning projects that I've worked on, domain expertise has always been very critical to coming up with a successful solution. On your team, how do machine learning developers collaborate with medical experts? Well, collaboration with domain experts is critical. Again, you know, touching back on the point about, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll reiterate this a little bit and expand on this a little bit. There's a lot of models one can build that predict something, but it may be of zero use to the real clinical users out there. Um, I was at a conference one time where a data science team was proudly showing that they could mine EMR data, right? That's a, a classic trove of data that's available to a lot of um, teams. And they, they were able to regress against endpoint mortality risk for patients in the hospital. And um, the first question from the audience was, well, what does one do with that? Who's gonna use that? 
and and they really didn't have a good answer. It was just that they had a, a chance to, you know, fit something with with data in and a, and a labeled out, but it really wasn't related to anything that clinicians could could act on. Now, clinicians in a hospital setting generally have a pretty good idea about who's at risk and how at risk they are, but there's no there's no way any of them can be. Well, let's just forget about this patient; they're doomed. Or you know, that patient over there, we're going to you know, pay less than standard of care effort on. So that's not an equation anybody can practice. And so what you really are telling say the mortality risk is stratified thus and so is really isn't very useful to them. Um, if they were to talk to the clinicians, they might find out what their real needs are. And they might be more like, well, uh, we'd rather know when, you know, when is it happening? Give me an early sign that something's happening so that I can act on it. Uh, that might be a, a more useful outcome there. So collaboration with domain experts is is super critical. Um, what we we try to engage everywhere we can with clinicians to try to uh, focus on the problems they're trying to solve, try to understand what they need and what their patients need. So we've uh, we generally have lots of interfaces to our customers, uh, clinical experts, and try to understand exactly what they're trying to solve for. In the pharmaceutical world, for example, we need to understand the target disease. How does it manifest in the patients? Uh, what can be expected of patient trajectory? What the drug interaction is expected to be? And, uh, you know, I think without that, you're, you're, you run the potential of creating algorithms and outcomes that nobody's really interested in. So it's it's very critical. Now that that's a two-sided conversation, however, in innovation, I would say. Um, one of the things that in my experience we've also seen is that you know the world of clinicians and and people in drug development is very busy. This is a world of huge, huge institutions with a lot of process and a lot that's going on. It's hard to change things. Uh, many of the people that are working in the trenches in those institutions may have trouble realizing latent pain that they, they've long since dismissed. Uh, they may be interested in um, continuing to do things the way they've been done without realizing that there's innovative ways to, to do stuff. So I think the conversation definitely has to be two-way two between you know, those who can talk about what's possible with the data and those who are actually the users um, in these institutions for those algorithm outputs and to figure out together uh, what might be feasible and, and uh, to target those things. So, you know, we've, I would say that, that it's in, incredibly important that anybody working in the application of, of machine learning techniques to any situation should really be uh, working above and beyond to find out uh, what is really needed and how the the uh, their target um, customer base really what kind of problems do they really have and uh, yeah so i think that's a, a big big issue is there any advice you could offer to other leaders of ai powered startups you know I, my feeling about this is that it's all about the data of uh, phys iq got started a lot earlier than we probably should have um, and, uh, you know, we've, we've benefited in a strange way in that we've been in the game a lot longer than um, other, you know, other players in this, in this space. So 
we've been collecting data for a long time. Uh, we built a robust platform to collect data. At one time, we even built our own devices because we got in so early that we, we, we didn't even find the devices we expected to find in the space and had to build our own just to, to go forward with, with um, collecting feasibility data in a clinical setting. So, you know, there's the, today we've got about 4.5 million hours of on-body data. I think it might even be higher than that now. And uh, that's really powering a lot of what we're able to do now with our machine learning techniques is this has provided us with a huge data trove to build and develop from and, and to validate against. Uh, often you've got an algorithm that you want to test, but you, you've got maybe a small target population who exhibit the physiology that you want to test against. But you also, I mean, it's, it's critical in developing these data-driven algorithms that you have a, a lot of negative examples as well. And so we can tap into the data trove to look at all the people who didn't have that phenomenon to make sure that, that what our uh, algorithm is doing has a high specificity for what we're looking for. I would say that um, for anybody getting into the application of AI, you know, in, in a new startup, um, there's lots of AI out there, right? A lot of the libraries have been open sourced. A lot of the techniques, the conventional um, techniques work pretty well. It really comes down to the data. It really comes down to having lots of data and the right data and the right labeling for that data. So you can't spend enough energy on making sure that whatever you're going to do is going to be powered by that kind of data. And like I say, for us, um, though we started probably earlier than we should have, um, we've been able to stay in the game because we're pretty fairly capital efficient company. But um, the benefit is that we've, we've got this large amount of data that we can draw upon. And I would, you know, it probably reached a tipping point. I want to say about five years ago, we noticed we went from being constantly starved for the data to being to, to feeling like, you know what, actually, we got more to look at than and we've got bandwidth to do so. So uh, that was a nice feeling we got there. And, and I think for, uh, you know, anybody else getting this space, you, you need to make sure that you've got um, access to the data. The other thing I would say in terms of advice is that um, is, is what you already touched upon, this idea of collaborating with the experts in the domain that you're going to be servicing, right? Understanding their problems, understanding what they face day in and day out in the trenches. Um, how can the data go wrong? What can dirty your data and lead to a, a you know, a, an inability to really produce something useful? So the collaboration is really important. Uh, as well. Yeah. So that, those are, I would say that's, that's the takeaway that I have is that, you know, machine learning algorithms, we've done a lot now. There's a lot of power in these, these algorithms. There's a lot that's been done in the libraries that are available. And more than anything now, success depends on having solid data and solid labeling of that data. Finally, where do you see the impact of PhysIQ in three to five years? That's an interesting and great question. I, it's it's tough to predict how well, uh, what kind of an impact one can make. You know, every every startup is a cork in an ocean. We want to change the world, but the world is a big, big place, and there's a lot of trends that are out there. Healthcare is a huge industry. You know, it's dominated by large industry players. Um, the way that money flows through the system. Um, makes a lot of existing entities uh, a, a huge 
cash flow stream. They do not want to kill off the ways they are making money today. There's a lot of resistance to change. And in fact, I think, you know, the layperson might be horrified to learn how the healthcare system actually works. But stepping back, um, something definitely has to change in healthcare. Uh, we all know that it's not sustainable the way things are now. But it's, um, you know, it, it, we don't have any illusions at PhysIQ about, about how a little company like ours can, can change things by ourselves. It's, it's really about timing, right? And sometimes you have to look for those windows of opportunity when in large industries with huge amounts of existing, um, you know, uh, business relationships and the way that they work today are ready for change. As I said before, PhysIQ was probably too early, um, but now we're, we're still in the game. And I think that now what we're seeing is that we've stayed in the fray long enough that things are changing. That window of opportunity is now here, I think. Whether the impact will be that will transform the world in three to five years is probably um, a long shot in healthcare in terms of you know being able to do that single-handedly. Very much so though, I think that there will be large institutions that are going to be involved in adopting and implementing change in healthcare. I think this is going to come from the outside. Um, and I think that PhysIQ is going to play an essential role in being part of the solution that some of these larger players are putting together right now that will take on the challenges of healthcare in the coming years. So I think that where, where our startup, uh, you know, our small company is today is that we're, demonstrating that these things can be done. We're demonstrating how, uh, what's possible with uh, analyzing data from the home environment with these continuous sensors. And, and now we're trying to be part of the conversation to change how this huge, huge industry does things. And I think they're open to that now. They're open, there's, there's forces afoot that are um, definitely looking to tap into and, and, and uh, transform the space. And I think what we'll be doing is, is being part of that solution. Um, so I, I think that's, it's interesting to think about that when you think about the impact of a company and what can a small startup do with AI? You know, I don't, it's amazing to me whenever I look at this, how, how much longer it really took a lot of companies to become successful brands than we might think. If you look at famous companies that deployed some new tech it's, it's surprising how many of them actually took a lot longer than you think. So, you know, this stuff takes a long time, but I think the window of opportunity here is open. And uh, I think in the next three years, three to five years, we're going to very much demonstrate that this can be done. And, and then the question is, how do you get an industry full of people who every smart people, both in healthcare and in, in pharma, among the smartest people I've, I've ever worked with. Uh, and they're, very, very busy people. They come to work every day and they've got to accomplish an enormous amount uh, that day. And they've, they live in a data rich uh, time. You know, we are all in a data rich time now. We're, our jobs have transformed in the last two to three decades such that, um, you know, a couple clicks on the keyboard and suddenly you've got a lot more to look at than you ever thought possible. And you've got to sift through it all to do your day job. Well, we come to these people and we're asking them to change their, their habits and their procedures and so forth. And it's, it's just a lot to ask for people to stop what they're doing and, and change what they're, they're, they're doing and, and adopt something new. So 
it does take a long time. And I think that in many ways, these are windows of opportunity we don't really have control of. But um, if you can stay in the game long enough, and you know, PhysIQ has certainly done that. Um, as I said, we've been a very capital efficient company for a long time. Uh, you have the experience and then the data. And then when that window op of opportunity opens, you got to be ready to jump through. And I think that kind of characterizes where we are today. I hope in the next three to five years, we'll see um, our ability to join forces with, with you know, larger institutions and companies that have the wherewithal to, to effectuate change at a scale and, um, and be part of that answer and that solution. I look forward to seeing where things go. Matt, this has been great. Your team at PhysIQ is doing some really interesting work for personalized medicine. I expect that the insights you've shared will be valuable to other AI companies. Where can people find out more about you online? Thanks. We're at uh, www.physiq.com. That's P-H-Y-S-I-Q.com. And uh, that would be a great starting place. We'd be happy to talk to anybody who would be interested to know more about what we're doing. Uh, and happy, I'm always happy to share my learnings in this space as well. So thank you for the opportunity today as well to talk. Well, perfect. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI.